you know, when you don't have language for yourself, you're kind of, you remain a mystery to who you are sometimes. Just knowing that I was born on a full moon, just knowing that I was born on a lunar eclipse, like those things are so important for me to like engage with as a human. And I don't even know half the things I want to know. Hello and welcome to Your Magic. I'm Michelle T, and today I'm talking with author Fariha Rojin, whose new book, Who is Wellness For?, dives deep into the generational traumas of colonization and explores healing her own history of abuse through wellness practices. We're going to talk about astrology's origin in Muslim culture, our gendered world, white supremacy, and more. After that, I'm going to share with you a simple Zodiac-based tarot spread that gives a ton of information. Stay with us. Whenever I think back to try to understand how I first learned of astrology, I think about my grandmother. Like me, she was an Aquarius, and I liked knowing we were the same in some mysterious way that I didn't really understand. The mysticism of it gave me a dreamy and excited feeling, like when I'd overhear my Nana talking about strange dreams she had, or the significance of certain numbers. Once I was eavesdropping on her gabbing to some friends at her job working the cash register at a department store in downtown Chelsea, Massachusetts, where we lived. She was talking about how the church was very against green carnations, but she was interested. I was already in Catholic school and wanted very much to be a good Christian and go to heaven to hang out with Jesus when I died. So if the church thought a particular flower was evil, I needed to know about it. I'd never seen a green carnation, but maybe it being an enemy of God was the reason why. Why are green carnations bad? I interrupted my grandmother and she and her friend burst out laughing reincarnation, she corrected me, and explained the concept of returning to life again and again. Weighed against a blissful eternity in paradise, lounging on clouds and having every good thing I ever wanted, my version of heaven, it didn't seem so great, but it was my first inkling that there would be thoughts and theories out there about the afterlife other than what I was being fed by the nuns. In my house, Linda Goodman's sun sign was on our bookshelf, stuffed there amongst the Stephen Kings and the Jackie Suzannes. It was consulted often. The way I was Aquarius like my Nana, sort of weird, maybe from outer space. I learned my mom and sister were both Scorpios, tough and kind of scary. My papa was a Sagittarius, which was why he liked to take us on long road trips to Florida each summer. My absent father was a Leo, proud and arrogant and shallow, but my mom's new husband was an Aries, a daredevil who loved to ride the scariest rides at the carnival, eat red hot chili, and take us sledding after snowstorms. Astrology has always been a way to enhance my understanding of people. It's not everything, of course. Countless phenomena influence who we turn out to be. Family trauma, place in the birth order, the culture and time we were born into, our class status. I could go on. But amongst all of them, astrology seems at least as important as the most crucial of influences. To me, astrology can help explain and predict how you might respond to childhood trauma, to the repressiveness of your native culture, to the limitations of your class status. And as we move deeper into an astrological renaissance that feels less of a trend than a deep embrace of ancient wisdom, it's increasingly frustrating to me to see astrology left out of psychology or biography or spirituality. Once I had a roommate who was nothing but earth stelliums. She fancied herself a scientist, a mathematician, and she had no use for astrology, save for something to lampoon. After tolerating weeks of gentle ribbing, I realized it would be impossible for us to cohabitate happily if she kept on giving me shit about the Zodiac. 
I told her I didn't care if she believed in it or not, but I did. And could she stop making fun of it all the time? She did. We became very good friends. And the longer we hung out together, I noticed something amazing happened. After spending the night with a new group of friends, my roommate turned to me and observed, that girl seemed like such a Gemini. Do you know when her birthday is? The girl in question was indeed a Gemini, and I held back from jumping all over my newly astrologically converted roommate with a bunch of smug I told you so's. But what happened is not that unusual. When people decide to open their mind and simply start paying attention to astrology, the information piles up and it rings true. It doesn't matter that we can't fully account for why it works. All we know is what the ancients knew. It does. With life on Earth being so often such a confusing mess of chaos and mystery, I'll take every tool for understanding my fellow humans that is available to me. And astrology is one of the best. Here's Fariha. Thank you so much for being a guest on Your Magic. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on all your books and really congratulations on Who's Wellness For? That I'm reading it right now. I do want to talk about it a little bit because it resonates so, so hugely with, you know, this, this podcast and our listeners. So what was the impetus behind sitting down to write it? So I've been in the wellness spaces for so long, like basically two decades now. So since I was a teenager, my sister was very involved in sort of what we called new agey things back then. And like, you know, I was like learning about Reiki and I was learning about auras and I was learning about witchcraft and I was learning about, I was reading like everything from Marion Williamson to like Martha Beck when I was 12, you know, like I had such an access to these things. Like it was a very, very natural decision on my end as both a thinker and a writer, but also somebody who exists on this plane, on this planet, um, as someone who is quite porous and I think naturally esoteric, it, it didn't feel like a jump for me to question. Also, like I'm South Asian, and I think a lot of South Asians silently have been observing kind of this for a really long time. And when you're young, and you know, I grew up in Australia, I didn't really have to think about white supremacy. Like I was computing, I was realizing, I was experiencing it, but you just thought that that was the world. The world was just unjust and it was just, you know, like it was just extractive. And I had a really radical Marxist father who was very, very into post-colonial politics. So I understood young, like the kind of realities that existed. And it was not until I really became a writer that I was like, oh, I can actually really do something about this. Because I was in organizing when I was a kid in Australia, I was organizing a lot. I started, I joined Amnesty in Oxfam when I was 12 and I was just doing like campaigning for them. And then I was, you sound like the coolest 12 year old that ever lived. <laughs> I, it's really strange because like, I didn't know that, you know, like I feel that way about myself now, like, but I still have the same style. I still have the same taste. I'm such a punk and like really cared about the planet and the world. And, you know, like when I was 16, I went to the Villawood detention centers in Sydney and I really understood that there was a plight that I wanted to inject myself into being um, a spokesperson or a 
a guiding light and force for people that had been overlooked or uncared for. People that were like me, queer people, Muslims, South Asians, like I'm all of that. And that's, you know, like those are all my identities and they're all equally mine. So like I need to protect mine. What is mine? What are the people that nobody cares about? And like, that's, I think, really the genesis of my work in general. Like I, I literally have always been this person. And, you know, before writing, I was going to be a human rights lawyer and that was just not possible for my temperament. And so writing became the, the gateway for me to find a way to speak about the things I really cared about. And I think poetry and the novel were just because they were already there. I needed to get them out. But Who Is Wellness For is really my first, it feels like the first real honest book of where I'm at right now processing what I'm processing. Yeah, no, I mean, it seems like it's the kind of thing that people are talking about privately, but there hasn't been a big thing. And so I really feel like the time is so ripe for your book. It's happening. A rupture, I feel it on a very big scale. So like, it's, it's definitely like, I think more and more people, as you said, like there's a, there's all of these private conversations that we have with one amongst one another, you know, in secret. But um, I felt this really with the book. I want to fight. I really want to fight white men. I'm really here to be like, yeah, let's go. Like this is, there's the, it's, the book is so heavy with facts and so heavy with research because I knew I was getting at so many people that would challenge me. So I want all of the information there and, and for me to be so resourced that if anyone asks me, I have an answer for something because the ways in which colonization has seeped into and white supremacy have seeped into every aspect of being in connection is so apparent and obvious and it has to be plucked out for us to move forward as a society. I was so impressed in your book about how when you're talking about um, your own life and yourself and your, your, your understanding of yourself, you include astrology as casually and, and, and like with as much importance as you, you know, claim any other thing that might be influencing your personality from, from like your upbringing or, you know, anything. Um, what's your history with astrology? Like how did, how did you come to have such like a, a strong and casual understanding of it? I started learning astrology 14 years ago through this Muslim astrologer who my sister introduced me to. She read, she was the first person I ever got my entire chart read by. And it was so confronting to be like seen so deeply by somebody and like all of the layers of oneself. I mean, at 18, I had, I knew myself intimately, but there was a lot about my contradictions I didn't understand or like didn't want to face. And, you know, when you don't have language for yourself, you're kind of, you remain a mystery to who you are sometimes. You know, something as simple as like, I'm a Cancer moon and I'm a Capricorn sun. And so I have a moon sun opposition. And what that means as a personality, like, I mean, just knowing that I was born on a full, full moon, just knowing that I was born on a lunar eclipse, like those things are so important for me to like, engage with as a human and I don't even know half the things I want to know you know like it's I've only I've been studying astrology for 14 years and not even diligently 
but my comprehension of it is still so new. Like there's still so much that I don't know. And it is this entire archive of thousands of years of people documenting, conversing. And to me, what was really cool, and I talk about this in the book, is like there is an entire 800-year period where the Muslim world was really at the pinnacle of astrological research and thought, and that so much of our astrological knowledge comes from their interpretation of Greek and and, um, Hellenistic societies and astrology like they were the ones that kind of brought it into the to the west and knowing that knowing that my lineage had a play in that understanding that my people were incredibly intelligent and to them astrology was as important as medicine it was common and known that not only the the rulers the the muslim rulers the kings but the but the, the doctors, the medical doctors, you could be a physician and a poet. That's where the Renaissance man idea comes from. It comes from the Muslims. And so like it, it is because there were poets and there were physicians and there were astrologers and there were astronomers and they were doing all of it. And all of it was important um, because they saw astrology as a science in a science that was necessary to understand human ways, but also just like the planet, planetarily, how we connect as a society. It's funny, like, they had this theory, a lot of Muslim astrologers had the theory that cancer risings make really good rulers. And, like, they had ideas like that. Like, they they, they were like, you know, if a ruler has a cancer rising, an ascendant in cancer, as well as a Mars in Scorpio in the 11th house, that means that they'll have, like, this, like, really well-rounded perspective of war and, like, um, emotion of the people. So they were thinking about all of these things and like placements and the, the importance of certain placements and like the kind of like, you know, chronic and also like medieval, like layered interpretations of like humanity. It's just so cool and so rich and so vibrant. So astrology is like, is like my entire practice of the planet. I ask everyone about their charts. I like want to talk about astrology all the time. My life doesn't exist outside of the realm of astrology. And I've been made fun of by a lot of people I know. Like I've had a really close friend once tell me that he's very surprised that someone as smart as me would be interested in astrology. This is many years ago, but it stayed with me. I don't even understand why people don't get how not only dismissive, but condescending and patriarchal that shit is. Yeah. And like, why isn't it that like, oh, this incredibly intelligent person believes so strongly in astrology. There's clearly something to it. Like that's the equation that like, should be reached. But the silencing of, of women and what we think of as the feminine, which I talk about in the book as well, like we have feminized things. And even though gender is bullshit, it's like we still live in a gendered world and we still operate in gendered ways with one another. Even, you know, in queerness, like there is so much eruption of just like these of misogyny, of patriarchy, of like all of this ingrained stuff that we haven't dealt with yet. You know, I just feel like uh, there's so much there's so much uh, people who don't believe in astrology or have that very strong anti energy towards it often don't even know astrology and never really spent any time. Right. Right. real time thinking about it or learning about it. I'm somebody who has in the past, you know, written horoscopes and it's it's just stupid. They were terrible. There's no really good way to write a brief horoscope 
that spans a month and all of the things that happen in the sky in a month in three lines for a magazine. You know what I mean? It's just, it was like, oh, wow. This is why people don't believe in astrology because they read these things Mm -hmm. and it doesn't resonate with them because how could it? I have have so many questions about astrology for you. Like, I want to know, like, what aspect of astrology are you like really obsessed with right now or that you're geeking out on right now? Is there is there something that you're particularly excited to learn about? The way that I learned astrology, which has been really fun, and that's why it feels like an endless journey, is just I read my own chart like again and again and again and again and again. And I'm just like, okay, what is that? You know, and the more I learn about it, it, things just clarify. So like, I'm always rereading my chart. And I think going step by step has really helped me because there's so much and because there's like the aspects and the asteroids and the, you know, the trines and the, it's just, yeah, it's, it's another language. It's another universe. It's a whole other point of reference. And it's, it is overwhelming, but I think that to anyone who wants to learn about it, just go step by step. And also be open to the fact that this is sort of a lifelong relationship. Well, I would love to read your tarot cards. I have this deck of this Toth deck here that I work with. I have that deck. Yay. Oh, cool. Cool. Do you read with it primarily? Do you have other decks too? So every morning I read with that deck. I read with the Rider Waite and I read with my medicine cards. Yeah. So I'm excited. Great. Well, what um, what's on your mind? I would love to know what my next couple months look like. Okay. Yeah. Let's do like, do you want to do like through the summer? Yeah. Through the end of summer? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we'll do, okay. I'm going to shuffle right now. I'll do a little shuffle for May, which is upon us. Okay, so now I'm shuffling for June, which is, you know, certainly a big month for you to have your book come out. So June, we'll do July. Okay, and then I'm going to do a little shuffle for August. All right, so May is the Six of Swords, Science, the Knight of Swords, and the three of cups abundance. Oh my nice. goodness. That's really great. Um, gosh, lots of like just clarity, like good perspective, good analysis. Like this is such a reassuring card, you know, I mean, you know, knowing what you do about astrology and about this particular deck and the way that the swords often show us like where we're clouded and where we're not seeing things very clearly, where we're projecting or our perspective is is not uh, aligned with reality. This card is like, no, it is. It's all, all of those things are cool. Not projecting, aligned with reality, like using, using logic to, uh, you know, for your best advantage. And then little knight of swords being like, okay, well, what are you going to do with this vision? You know, where are we going to take it? Where, where do you want to take it? And then a totally different element coming in with the emotions with this three of cups, which is such a lovely cancer card Mm. of just feeling, feeling love and feeling support and getting to share that June. Let's see what has come up for June. Wow. Okay. So this is the book month. You have the first card here is this nine of swords, right? Oh my God. Is this just like anxiety? Like, and just like, Oh fuck. Like, you know, 
this, this cruelty card, I, I often think of the cruelty card as just like an anxiety card. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because mm-hmm. in the in the Rider Waite deck, it's the person, you know, sitting up in bed holding their head. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's so true. When I get my anxiety, it's it's always in bed, right? Where I'm just laying there and it's like I have my mind is eating itself. So this is, you know, and it's but this is very very interesting. You also have the Empress card and the art card here. Interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. right? So I mean the Empress card is really it makes me think a lot of things. I mean, it's it's gorgeous, obviously, and it's about creativity. And it's like, you know, you created this beautiful work of this book that you're bringing out into the world. And now it's your job to sort of um, nurture it and be of service to it the way that, you know, the Empress is sort of like this cosmic mom, mm-hmm. the ideal the ideal cosmic mom that, you know, we've mostly never had, um, just wanting to support you and nurture you the way that you're going to be there for your book, right? So mm-hmm. it feels like a very nice, you know, major arcana to get during an important month like that. Um, you know, and I know, you know, you've written so much about your relationship with your mom and how fraught that is. And I'm wondering also if that, if there's anything mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. I don't know what it's like for you to, you know, to write a book that is so, so, you know, it's so heavily researched and it's so, you know, there's so much theory and philosophy in it, but it's also, there's a lot of memoir in it and you, you're talking so vulnerably, yeah. very memoir. Yeah. So I'm wondering if there's any sort of, if you're anticipating. Yeah. Well, I've been going through this huge legal process because as you know, like I talk about being a child sexual abuse survivor. So it's like, I've had to face a lot of legal pushback and like them trying to censor me. So like, it's been a really hard last couple of months. I'm not surprised the Nine of Swords is there. Absolutely. Because okay. it's it's just hard to put something out like that. Um, a lot of people don't want to see it, you know? Yeah. It's, I think it scares a lot of people, yeah. you know? Um, so I'm glad that you were able to push through it and get the book that you wanted. And it looks like there's just some, some like residual, you know? It's like, it's hard. It's hard. And you're going to be feeling... The way that, um, you know, it's beautiful and like really like an act of love, not to, just to yourself, but to other people that you did do that, you know, um, with the Empress card. But you're also yeah. going to be feeling the very kind of human normal fears around it. Your final card for June, though, is also the art card. So I feel like you're really like, this is so good. You know, it's like, I love that um, the art card is a Sag card because it really has mm. that that sort of Jupiter like goodness, bringing good fortune. Like you did the work, you created the art. You know, I don't know. You know, there's an aspect of this around partnerships. I don't know if there's anybody in your life that that you feel like you'll be getting closer to in June or that was part of this that you'll be celebrating alongside. I, I feel that often it's not necessarily that. It really just is about creativity and about like, the relationship that creativity can kind of make you have with yourself. So I just think these two are are bigger than this. Yeah. Not to downplay, not to downplay the swords card, but you know, two major arcana is so so great. What's the art card in the writer weight deck? It's temperance, which has such oh, a different energy, right? It is sort of about that middle path of moderation. Um and so, you know, sometimes when I'm reading the Rider Waite, I'm sorry, when I'm reading the top deck, I do just throw in a little ghost of the Rider Waite. And so, you know, if I, if I were to do that with this, I would say that also like, you know, June is bound to be a, a, a hectic month for you to have this big thing coming out and it's going to make a big splash and it's going to be so intensely personal and then so public to also like do what you can to kind of temper the, mm. the bigger, like try to like bring the highs and the lows into some sort of middle path that you can manage. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And now for July, it looks like there's still a little bit more of that that hauntingness in July. You have the seven, the seven of discs, which I think this is such an interesting card. I actually just learned a lot about this card from reading um, Shani Nicholas's app because she had been writing about this recently. Because, oh. you know, in the Rider Waite deck, this is not um, a bad card. It mm-hmm. is the card of the person who's, you know, working on their garden or on their farm and is taking a moment to think. And so I'm like, why was Crowley so dark-minded all the time? Like, why did he take that card and make it this, you know, really doom and gloomy looking card. And according to Johnny, she was talking about how, you know, because the earth wants to grow, Mm -hmm. right? And as a Capricorn, you probably really relate to this the way Capricorn always wants to be climbing, right? There's going to, something's always in process. And so when there is a pause, it can become a little weird vacuum for fear to grow in. Mm -hmm. It can just, in that pause, fear can grow. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there's just not a moment for you in July where I don't know if you're having anxiety around the book, if there's just like a moment where like everything's actually fine, but there's a pause and in that pause, there's some anxiety. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. what's possibly the antidote for that is the Knight of Cups, your cancer, feeding the cancery parts of yourself because, you know, it's Mm -hmm. the Capricorn that's going to be feeling the seven of discs. Like, you know, it's like, oh, but I wanted, you know... I wanted to ascend higher, faster, you know, like in that Capricorn way. But the Knight of Cups with the Cancer, it's like, just go where the love is. Go where the love is in your life. Go where the people who love you are, you know, give yourself love. Like you did a huge undertaking. This book is a huge undertaking in so many different ways. And you just got to love yourself for it and just love the book and be of service to the book. And Ace of Swords also. So there's going to be a new way of thinking about it now that it's out in the world going to be a new way of thinking about yourself hmm. as a, a writer, a thinker, you know, a person um, with the ha- sort of ra- raise and profile that this book will bring to you. So that's, that's going to be something to process as well. And we'll certainly have like highs and lows with it. Um, and then let's see what August holds for you. Nice. I like this. I like this. So by August, you get the magician card. Nice. So remind <laughs> was waiting for that one. Me too. <laughs> it's like just gotta wait for everything to move into Leo. You know what I mean? Just like let it just gotta let it move into Leo. And it's it's gonna be like you will be called to shine, right? And all of those, all of those things that you're worried about in July, where you're like, <clears throat> you know, it's like August is gonna see so much movement, so much manifestation. And you move from the Ace of uh, Swords to the Ace of Wands, right? Which is that fire, that Leo, that really great, like, you know, I don't know, being called to perform, being called to express. Mm -hmm. And then look at you also have Queen of Discs, which is that beautiful self-actualized Capricorn sitting on your pineapple with your pet goat, looking over your beautiful land, like knowing, you know, really being able to own and appreciate, you know, what you've done. That's amazing. Yeah, August is going to be awesome for you. August is. I wonder if July is a little bit of like it's almost like you know you put so much work into something and then it comes out into the world and then there's a little sag. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like a little bit of almost Mm -hmm. like okay, well I did that and now what? But like come, you know, you'll get over that come Mm -hmm. August. Oh my Mm -hmm. god, there's going to be so much for you to do and um, so many different ways for you to engage. That's amazing. Yeah, cool. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so grateful.
So this astrological tarot spread is so simple, some of you probably already do it, having seen examples in other media, or maybe even sussing out the possibility on your own. As every house of the zodiac governs a different aspect of our lives, pulling a card for each can give us an informative map of how we're doing at any given time. I think this is an especially good reading for birthdays and New Year celebrations, but it's truly good for any time you need a deeper check-in. Here we go. Your first card is the first house, ruled by Aries and the planet Mars. This is you, your core personality, how you're seeing yourself, how you're feeling. Card number two is the second house, where Taurus lives, Venus's summer home. It represents your home and the living that occurs within your domicile. Card three is third house slash Gemini territory, where Mercury likes to party. It rules communication, writing, gossip, and technology. Card four will illuminate your fourth house of family. This is a lot of family of origin vibes, for better and for worse. And if you have children, they will pop up here. It does also rule chosen family. It's associated with cancer and the moon. The fifth house is the Leo house of play, creativity, romance, sex, and dating. How you attract and magnetize. It is associated with the sun. The sixth house rules Virgo and also Mercury. It rules how we care for our body and also discrimination in a broad sense. What we do and do not allow in and around us and the boundaries, strategies, and order that keeps things near or far from our corruptible selves. The seventh house is Libra and Venus and rules close partnerships, romantic relationships and marriage, yes, but also deep friendships, collaborators, business partners. The eighth house is heavy duty Scorpio and Pluto vibes. Here we seek the unseen and the hidden, the mysteries of sex and death, deep psychology, mysticism and the occult. This is where we harbor our own secrets and poke at the skeletons in other people's closets. The deepest emotions, ones we'd rather not admit to having, live here. The ninth house is cheery and optimistic Sagis domain, as well as gift-giving Jupiter. It rules the places we expand our knowledge, higher education, travel, meaningful adventure. It also governs philosophy and the fine line between philosophies and spiritual beliefs. Hungry for justice, it shows what you'll fight for. The 10th house is cold, calculated Capricorn's domain and the big bad planet Saturn. It's your career house, where and how you're able to advance yourself through this material world. The 11th house is the house of community. The groups that you see yourself among, that you look to serve or participate in, live here, as does your larger attitudes towards humanity and liberty. Finally, the 12th house, Pisces and Neptune, rules endings, dissolution, the temporary nature of our temporal world. It's the house of letting go and is also spiritual, creative, and mysterious. It holds fantasy and illusion, imagination. Now, you might want to end with a final card that sort of pulls all this information together. It's a lot to synthesize. Obviously, houses and signs you have a particular affinity for might hit you harder than houses that aren't too operative in your chart, but still, pay attention to them. Like, you might not have any Taurus in your chart or an empty second house, but you still have someplace you lay your head at night, and you might need that extra help connecting to the realm of home. This reading can help us better understand the parts of our life our natal charts have left us feeling ambivalent about or unskilled at. It also helps you understand more about astrology, even as you're learning more about the tarot. Enjoy. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and that it has inspired you to think a bit more about astrology, how it does or doesn't impact your life, 
how you might open yourself a bit more to it, and how it could be yet another tool in your interpersonal toolbox. Of course, there's no substitute for seeing a professional astrologer and having your chart or transits read, so do utilize the services of those in your community practicing this ancient, enduring art. Your Magic is Ben Cooley, me, Michelle T., Molly Elizalde, Tony Gannon, and Vera Blossom. We got production support from Kirsten Osai Bonzu. And our original theme music is by John Kimbrough. Thanks for listening. <laughs>